0: Oh, and now we've got sound check on Brian's side. Excellent. We are live, folks. We are back. Uh, if you've missed me, I hope you have a little bit. I've missed you too. Uh, but but we're changing that today. We've got uh, Bonnie Tinder and Brian Summer here. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be deconstructing the realities of the service firm and its role in transformations. Bonnie, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. And John, I also have missed you every Friday. Uh, so I'm glad we're back for happy hour. Yes.
0: Yes. Sorry, folks. I've uh, been a little irregular. That's the price of an underground show, but the underground spirit lives. Brian, how you doing?
2: Well, I haven't missed my vitamin snark discipline, uh, you know, dosage every day. So it's good to see you sporadically, John. So yeah, yes. that's good. All right. Yes. Yeah,
0: so, uh, this this topic is really important to me. I mean, if there's one theme about this show, it that that transcends the different episodes and different kinds of guests, it's the realities of transformation on enterprise projects. What really works and what doesn't, and I have found that in many cases, the role of the service partner just gets overlooked in these conversations. and And that's going to change today because that's what we're talking about. And uh, Brian and Bonnie have independently gathered. Their top do's and don'ts in terms of what to look for in a transformation services partner, shall we say, on your project or uh, how to separate the shitty (laughs) and and the good services firms is another way of uh, expressing that. But the point is they don't know what each other's answers are yet. So this is going to be exciting to see to what extent these two strongly opinionated individuals agree or disagree on this topic. So I'm definitely looking forward to, to getting to the bottom of this one. Um, and, you know, I I think one of the things in the background for me that operates on this topic is, like, I think software has been forced to undergo undergo a pretty profound transformation in terms of SaaS business models and stuff like that. I would argue that's not complete. Uh, I don't believe services has gone through the same transformation yet. That's my personal bias. And so that's why I have an extra to grind on this topic. So I like to be upfront about that. <laughs> and that's why we're here today. And And also, we have data. So we're not just winging it here. Bonnie actually is going to be sharing with us some data. So I think we're going to start there. So Bonnie, we actually have a slide. We're doing slides.
1: We're doing slides. Wow. It's a late in life, but that doesn't preclude our our slide action here. Also, Um,
0: tell us about, tell us what's on the slide and what have you learned. Is this this quarter, right?
1: Yep. Q1. Uh, 2022. So this data goes through the end of March of this year. And I think, um, you know, it's good to sort of level set what we are seeing in the marketplace in terms of trends with um, projects and these digital transformation projects. And I think the important thing to note about this data is it comes directly from clients. So, um, you know, Raven Intelligence, where we gather this information, it's a peer review site, we get this information from, you know, the front lines, from the customers who have actually gone through the implementations themselves, not the vendors. The software vendors have quite a different story, as as we know, um, their stats are quite a bit probably on the more positive side. These are stats according to customers. And I think it really gives us a reality check on, you know, what does the overall success of these digital transformation efforts look like? And what is the reality in terms of, um, you know, benchmarks? So how on time and how on budget are they? What's the typical turnover with uh, the team, so to speak? So the, the data that you're looking at right here on this slide uh, is based on over 2,000 peer reviews that we have vetted to ensure that these are actual real customers um, that have just gone through a project. And what we are seeing just overall in terms of trend is that only 61% of projects end up being um, on time, or you know, the what the client had expected the time for them um, to be, and that means that. Um, I'm sorry, 58% um, are on time. So that means 42% of them are late. In terms of on budget, 61% of them went according to the budget that was planned versus 39% that went over budget. Uh, Team consistency. So that's the rate of change on the team that was initially assigned. Only 56% of the time do we have a project where the team stays intact, Um, you know, The other, you know, almost half have either a slight change in team or a significant change in team. And these, I think, factors, while they don't determine whether a project is successful or failure, they, you know, they certainly do impact a client's overall satisfaction with um, their project, with their software vendor and with the partner that um, helped them, you know, implement. And you can see in terms of the average NPS scores out of 10, what those look like in all three different categories. So how happy was I with my project? How happy was I with my partner? How happy was I with my software vendor? And you can see the averages in there Um, as well as sentiment averages, you know, in terms of how did I feel about my team, and how did I feel the process was out of five? And you can see the averages below. So you know, all in all, um, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement in here in terms of um, not only you know performance as it relates to planning, but overall uh, customer sentiment. Um, you know, isn't you know, isn't isn't great across the board.
0: Uh, Thomas, welcome to the chat. Is this consistent across type of solutions that get implemented, especially the on-time and on-budget data?
1: You know, again, we, we look at um, projects and we have to sort of make them all relative. What I would say is, you know, projects that are smaller in nature typically, typically are going to, you know, have a higher propensity to be on-time and on-budget, um, but not in all cases. So this, you know, this is a collection of, you know, let's say HCM, as well as, you know, an ERP full-blown implementation, like an S4 HANA, or, a, you know, a planning um, and, and financials system. We, we look across seven different major software ecosystems, you know, from individual projects all the way up through, uh, you know, a global multi-phased rollout. Um, and these are again, averages across the board.
0: Uh, Just real quick, uh, a couple more quick things from the chat. Uh, Thomas, by the way, uh, thanks for all those excellent metaverse posts. We're not going to be getting into the metaverse on this show, but you and I, I think, are going to collaborate on something in the future. I say that. I say that because I use that as homework for disrupting disrupt TV earlier today. So thanks, Thomas. John Belden, average average size of project. By the way, John Belden of Upper Edge is all over this kind of stuff. So thanks, John, for being here.
1: Yeah. So great question, John. These are all, you know, enterprise size plot projects. I would say, you know, we start with um, you know companies that have over a thousand employees and these are are our multi-country uh global rollouts so you know enterprise level um you know type of projects in terms of if we use a simple count like employees i'm going to say a thousand and above um we do have the full demographics that i can get for you though
0: sorry thomas but enterprise projects uh Aren't, when when we get to the metaverse all these problems are going to go away anyway so it's not worth discussing that today but another time uh and and by the way brent thanks i'm glad to have you here thanks i wouldn't even have a show on regularly without some of your collaboration on the video side so thanks and josh loves a good index bonnie so he's 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 all in uh brian why, brian what is your take on on so far the data do you have questions or comments on this
2: so my first one is, uh, and it ties to the first bad thing I see from bad uh, firms who aren't going to help with the transformation. And that is, there are companies, a lot of service firms that just phone in the proposal. They don't even bother to show up and you know walk the halls, talk to the customers, the users, whatever, to really find out what's going on. And therefore, all they're going to do is they're going to deliver a very generic solution without... Um, uh, you know, without any real transformative capability. It's just a in-the-can deal that follows the standard method and practice. Uh, what really gets my goat is to see them, uh, to, you know, pres- present this proposal, fixed fee even, and all they're really going to do is they're going to map data out of an old system and put it in the new system without change. So how in the world is that transformative? I don't know. And the reason I bring this up is, Eventually, what happens is the project starts and the client thinks they're going to you know it's going to take so much time and cost so much money and then all of a sudden the wheels come off the wagon when somebody asks the one smart question what's going to be different when this thing's over with and the answer is nothing and then the whole thing gets uh, you know crashes and burns and it has to go through a restart et cetera etc cetera. so there has to be a change that's the fundamental deal that Uh, It's not going to be a transformative kind of project and deliver transformative results if you're using some formulaic, schlocky, done-it-a-million-times-in-the-can kind of implementation, whatever, and proposal. So I would just say, yeah, do you have any – oh, there's Josh. Okay. Uh, You're not going to – I'm not sure that on time and on budget are the only critical metrics. And I'm sure by saying that Bonnie's going to whip some new slide out and make me look bad. And she's nodding her head. Yes. So, okay. We might as well get the, get the whipping post out now. Uh, so anyhow, I'll, I'll be quiet.
1: Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's a whipping posted and, post, and, I, and I, I don't actually have a, a, any other slides. Um, um, unfortunately,
0: but <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm good with that. One, one slides enough for my show. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you know, what I would say is these are KPI measurements along the way. Do these reflect the absolute most important benchmark, which is to say we've got the value that we thought um, and, and the return on investment that we, you know, set out to get from this particular project. Those are the larger questions that um, I think some of these things are leading indicators of that because if you run a you know a, a good project, ultimately that's going to um, you know increase your probability for a, a higher result in the end. Um, but you know, I, I think these are the metrics that we look, the, the project metrics that we look at along the way um, to keep the, the wheels on on the on the track, so to speak. Ensuring that you know, once you get to the end, you get the value and the business impact desired, um, you know, from this. And you know, again, those are a different set of metrics that that we do have um, that I think are are important to to talk about as well.
0: Brian, rebuttal time. I'll save it
2: till the end, uh, you know, for when it's my turn to present the direct testimony. But
0: go ahead. <laughs> Uh yeah, we we're Brian, we were just joking before the show that Brian didn't have the opportunity to review Bonnie's evidence in the form of a slide and present proper rejoinders. <laughs> Brian's coming off an expert witness gig, so this is Brian's Brian's gone legal on us. So that's that's what's going on here. <sighs> so no comment from Brian, I see. Uh, still under NDA. I got it. Uh, so so Josh, uh Josh has a question about uh any specific data SAP RISE projects. And I will say up front that, that this show isn't intended to delve into specific vendor communities very much. That's not really what I want to do today, but I do want people to be aware, Bonnie, that your firm does track uh, vendor community uh, performance. So you may want to mention that real quick.
1: Without a doubt. And I would say, you know, RISE is a fairly new, uh, you know, product uh, slash service methodology. So we're still, um, you know, getting enough of data points to, to have a statistically significant sample size there. Um, but I think that's an important, um, you know, methodology to, to look at because it is this accelerated time to value um, type of, of proposition. And Josh, that's a, it's a great question. We'll continue to, to monitor that.
0: And, and and for any uh, viewers that aren't familiar, just very, very quickly on that, the 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 reason it's worth examining, Rise, is because it is SAP's a, attempt to provide a combination of uh, helping customers move to hyperscalers, usually in conjunction to S4 HANA, their go-to release, along with a transition to a subscription-based uh, uh, operational model, OPEX, if you will, sort of cloud, cloud-esque way of, of doing the upgrade, uh, where where I think customers are having immediate issues that Bonnie's going to want to look at is around the role of what SAP provides versus the hyperscaler and nailing all of that down. And then in the long run, to Brian's point, the bigger question is going to be whether the transformation actually delivered the value. Um, but that's going to be a commonality, I think, no matter what software community that you're operating in. Um, I think we have a comment from from John Belden here that I want to get to. One of the core reasons that companies have terrible crash and burns is that companies focus on schedule and budget first versus focusing on operational continuity and ability to achieve benefits. Hard to disagree with that statement. We are going to be venturing into a countdown portion of our show. The countdowns are going to basically be the how how service firms to avoid is basically one way to think about it or perhaps the shitty characteristics of services firms or don'ts, as I think uh, Bonnie has organized her list. So this is going to be fun because, as I said at the top, Brian and Bonnie have not seen each other's answers to these vital questions. Before we do that, any, any final comments uh, before I remove the slide deck? Brian, do you have anything more you want to add to what we have so far?
2: All I'll say is that... Um I actually consulted this great resource material. It's uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition. So these are all the rules you need to get a a great software implementer. You know, I've I've consulted them all in here, or or at least I'll say I adapted the ones in here that work for the software industry. So anyway.
0: Well, with that as a tease, Brian, I I can't stop now. We got to get into your, give us one of your tops. I I know you have a couple extras too, so that's good. So where do you want to start? So one of my top ones,
2: uh, I'll start right at the tip top. And that is, uh, I think the the best service providers walk in the door with intellectual property, concepts, ideas, designs, process flows, everything that shows people what is the art of the possible. They're not in there talking about speeds and feeds and how, you know, and their quick implementation methodology. They're talking about different kinds of outcomes that somebody could get. And uh, that's what you want to hire. You want to hire somebody who's going to take you to the end of some great journey, not somebody who's just going to show you how to gas up your car. So that's my first one right there.
0: Uh, No arguments there. Uh, Is that from your bad list? Because I want to do the bad list first.
2: Oh, well the bad one the corollary to that is they just phoned in the proposal with no original thought or anything else, so we'll, uh yeah
0: the dial the dial in okay the uh the boilerplate r f p mechanism
2: yeah in fact yeah. any anytime, anytime anybody shows up with uh doesn't even show up just phones in the proposal with a rapid methodology and all that then you know um uh, you might as well just toss them out the door you're not going to get anything out of them.
0: Ah, uh, Brian. It's a little bit of a side topic, but I, I take it you're optimistic about AI generated RFPs. Then uh, this is excellent. Um, <laughs>
2: only only in the metaverse. Okay. Uh,
0: okay, Sean. Thomas. There's your metaverse reference. Uh, okay. So 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 Bonnie, w- give us one of your don'ts of uh, services of uh, partners to avoid.
1: Um. Don't assume that because you're interviewing a, a consulting firm that has a big brand, right? So they're part of the big four or five. Um, and you know they advertise at the airport that they are going to be the best solution for your project. The data that we have there shows no correlation between the name brand of a firm and the customer success. Um, instead, you wanna look at the team, the approach, And you want to look for fit more than, um, you know, a lot of hype around that particular vendor. Is that you really want to understand that they have done projects just like yours successfully, and that they have a proven track record of success. And by proven, that means that you can point back to other customers like you in your industry, your size, the scope of your project. That have had um, you know a, a positive outcome from the project, and they have achieved benefits. Not just was project were projects done on time on budget, but you know what was the outcome of a project just like mine? you know and and can that firm reference it? That is so much more important than you know, hey, these guys have a, a huge name in in the marketplace and sponsored the last vendor software you know software vendor party.
0: We got an Amen from Josh on that one. Thomas wants to know what percentage of clients want to see original content rather than asking for a bulleted list point by point.
1: What do you mean by original content? What what type of content are you talking about?
0: Yeah, Thomas, you want to elaborate on that? I think one I think one thing that's interesting too is that I, I just did a thing with an Acumatica customer where part of their so-called uh, bake off with their partners was uh, was around, uh, and of course, this varies by customer. But they shared actual their own de- some of their production data and asked for some demonstrations based on that. And I think that's pretty powerful to be able to if you're if you're willing to part with some of that, and the and the the firm in question can utilize that to show you what they can do with your data. I think that's another way to get beyond the platitudes, right,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Brian. You got that look on your face starting to heat up here? I I guess
2: I'm just having a heartburn. The way Bonnie was describing, uh, you know, you want to talk to, find out, have they done a project just like yours, you know, for other people and what kind of scores they get. And the part that bothers me about that is the just like yours, uh, because the, uh, and, and and I agree with the sentiment Bonnie's delivering, but I am going to tell you that. That's not where the market's moving today. That was indicative of the past when everybody was trying to just get a basic, like a payroll system installed, just like everybody else. When they were trying to get competitive parity, competitive advantage. So if you want, if one of the goals of your initiative is to come up with something that's unique, uh, maybe drives outsized value uh, for your firm either internally through its operations or competitively on the outside, then I don't know that you can find someone who did something just like your project because your project by definition should be something different. So again, it comes back to... What's the quality of the thinking, the strategy, the intellectual property, whatever that they're going to bring to bear, as opposed to their ability to replicate the exact same formulaic thing they did for somebody else?
1: And I and Brian, I would agree with that. And I think it's you know, it's you don't want somebody who's going to take a cookie cutter approach, you know, and have you look exactly like, you know, another customer that's of similar industry and and size. You know, I think it's pairing that experience, previous experience with all right, so how innovative are they as well what are they bringing to the table in terms of expanding your horizons absolutely right there,
0: yeah, uh Dennis, uh, just on your point about, yeah, uh some of this uh is is dark stuff that keeps repeating, um that's partially my fault though, because the first part of my show is intended to allow people to grouch a lot, so. <laughs> then we shift over to talking about solutions and fresh approaches. Once we get the spleen properly vented, I, I get the feeling that Brian still needs to fully exacerbate all this spleen that he has built up on now, this topic. So I was just going to say, it's
2: actually good to see, uh, Den uh, commenting in here. I haven't, uh, traded barbs with him in a while and it's always, uh, it's always a fascinating deal. Um, um, Dennis, how it is. Okay. Um, so, right. uh, so Brian, what's next on your list uh on the don'ts or the dos what do you want uh
0: we want to grouch we're talking we're talking't um i
2: I think one of the problems is when I see a service firm that just wants to compete or predominantly compete based on fees, that tells me that they're totally missing the real picture here, which is the value that the customer wants is not necessarily on the lowest possible uh billing rate or at lowest average billing rate cost, whatever um i i i want to see someone who's walking in going uh it doesn't really matter what our billing rate is because the value we're going to throw off is 770 times more multiples in value that gets thrown off the deal i think it's focused on the wrong thing when we get into a uh you know a, whatever a spit match over uh dollars and rates and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff so uh if you're if you got a, an integrator, or whatever that's coming at you with that kind of a story, then I can pretty well guarantee you they're not focused on really delivering value or the right
0: kind of value. Let's put it that way. We got one of the best typos I've seen in a while from Den here. He says he can see steam coming out of his eats. That's you, Brian. He meant ears, but I kind of like eats. That really does work well.
2: You couldn't see it very well because of this headphone. That was the problem. Uh, Anyway.
0: By the way, I use the tea kettle analogy with Brian because I've seen Brian in vendor briefings where I could see that he's starting to get madder and madder and his face getting redder and redder. Then comes the explosion, and it's always so beautiful when the tea kettle goes off. And uh, I remember one time, Brian, that led to your fantastic phrase that... Uh, after a 30-minute presentation, you said, this was just a study in
2: incrementalism. Yeah, Beautiful. I've never been able to quite live that one down, um, and uh, there are still vendor people that were in that meeting that still come up and remind me about that from time to time at a show, <laughs> so yeah, I uh, I, re- I remember that, yeah. Uh,
0: by the way, Tracy, it's great to see you uh, in the show again. Uh, it's been a while. Um, And uh, by the way, on SAP Rise, Bonnie did say that she's gathering data on that. I also made a couple of generalized comments about that. We're not going to be getting further into that today. But um, so Den is saying, as Brian's suggesting, that innovation is so rare that making good choices is really hard. I'm not
2: saying that it quite that way, uh, Dennis, but I am saying that it's uh, almost incumbent on the buyer to basically push all kinds of buttons with different service providers to get them to show me the value, show me the innovation, because uh, the initial knee-jerk responses, send them our fast implementation methodology and standard proposal, and uh, once they accept the deal, we'll bury that poor client with about 60 change orders in the first month alone uh, until we finally figure out what we're were going to do or what we should have been doing all along. So, yeah, the innovation, it can be a little hard to find unless you have some, like, hard-nosed guy like yours truly, you know, whispering in the client's ear, like, don't settle for that. You know, ask them this. Here are your six big questions. that will park them on their backsides for, you know, being so lazy. Uh, but yeah.
1: And, and you well, know, I, I would add to that. As you're trying to test for, is this firm innovative or not innovative? I, I think it's difficult to paint a broad brush and say, this firm is innovative. I think you need to understand, is this team Innovative, and who is it from the firm's team that I'm getting assigned that is going to help us challenge our old way of thinking or help us create something that you know didn't exist within our organization before? And you know, it's hard to say, you know, XYZ firm is known for that as much as it is to say this team is coming in asking all the right questions and challenging our thought process, even during. You know, a selection process. And I think it's it's you really need to to look at the team themselves, the people that are going to be assigned to your project to understand is this group of folks going to help challenge our thinking? not is this firm in general? because that's that that's a really hard, um, you know, it's it's not like a product. It's not like a piece of software. You can say that's an innovative piece of software versus something like this. You know in the world of of software consulting, yeah, it really depends on the team that you get assigned. I mean, sure, there's some higher propensity within firms to have a really solid quality team, but you really need to check under the covers on that team to see is this team innovative?
0: Uh, Josh wants to know if we're going to call the customers, too. They have a major responsibility. I think, Josh, you'll find that's an underlying theme in this discussion. But, no, that's not the focus of today. The focus of today is specifically on the role of services firms. So that's just an attempt to get to the bottom of this. But uh, you've written a really good post on customers' role and customer success. So can you paste that into the chat? And that way, folks can take a dig in that, and we'll certainly be revisiting the role of the customer in future events as well. Because there's that's not to be diminished. It's just I wanted to focus on the services partners this time around. Uh, I have a we have a question from uh, from Sam Gupta. Fast implementation methodology. I would be interested in knowing if that really works. Now, there is a loaded question for you.
2: You want to start, Bonnie? I'll. I'll gladly let you step into the abyss first if you want.
1: Yeah, um, I, I would say uh, that really depends. Um, I would say on average, it's not recommended. It's a great way to lift and shift. Um, but most of the clients who go through that process end up doing so much rework on the back end that they wish that they had just taken the time to do it right you know, from the get go. Um, so I would say overall, rapid implementation, um, you know, it, unless it's a super easy migration or lift and shift type of uh, arrangement, it's not going to provide real lasting change.
2: I actually would agree with that. I, I think it's a um, I think people are hoping it's some kind of panacea, but it generally, it's not going to deliver long-lasting value. I mean that—that's really what it boils down to. And the biggest thing, I, you know, I would caution people is, you know, f- folks, think about it. You're for many of your firms, you've automated something like your accounts payable system three, four, five times. Same with, same thing with payroll and general ledger and the like. If you re-automate it one more time, just because you put maybe a modern architecture underneath it or you um, put it in the cloud. But if the functions still work the same way, if the data and data models haven't changed, if you haven't altered the chart of accounts, for example, uh, to clean up, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of accumulated, uh, you know, dust in that thing, then all you did is you just made yourself a slightly newer 1955 Edsel, Uh, you know, what have you got? It's still, you know, it's still not a real road warrior there. Um, I'm not, I'm not sold on those entirely. I can see the value if you needed something quick and fast to get you out of a bind, like, uh, your company just recently divested and you've only got 90 days to stand up new systems. I get it. Okay. There is a time and a place for some of these things, I'm just not sure it's the all-purpose, do-it-for-everybody kind of solution.
0: There you go. Uh, Dennis, yes, that Agile article is definitely relevant. I I don't have it handy. I'll see if I can dig out the link at some point uh, so I can post it in the chat. Thanks for that. John has a comment. John's posted on Blog on Agile before as well large Agile developments, how to measure performance and evaluate SIs on delivery, go. Well, John's teeing us up right there with the nice uh, Agile development riff. Man, the comments are flying in today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People are uh, weighing, and we got some heavy hitters in the chat. Really appreciate you guys going at it there. Comments on Agile development is is playing a role in all of this. (laughs)
2: I think it's great, particularly if you're using it to kind of um, uh, help the client understand uh, what it is they're going to get or what they think they want to get. And then that gives you room and opportunity to trot these concepts out, trot out the, the way the new processes flows, screens, forms, whatever are going to look like get that feedback almost immediately and then just keep iterating till you get it uh, right and close. And this would be true whether it's of a package or on the custom side. So uh, yeah, there's value in that. Um, I'm kind of more of an old school guy and I kind of like to at least whether it's chalkboard or whatever and get the stuff figured out ahead of time as much as possible, but I have no problem using some agile stuff. Once you have, the strategy, the direction, and the general concepts are nailed. So, um, yeah, I, I'm okay with that. I think I think
0: it can coexist. Thomas also brought in an important point on on uh, on price versus value, which is sort of an underlying theme here. I think he says as a co- as a consultant, he does his utmost to avoid these issues, still clients are often asking the wrong questions and the estimated price tag is often a major decision criteria. We had some customers that chose another SI then came back to us when they figured out the chosen partner led them nowhere. So I, I think that ties in a lot to the whole fast you know, implementation thing, right? Where it's, I think Tracy referred to it as a race to the bottom but that race to the bottom I think goes counter to what Brian's talking about which is that projects today for the most part need to Transform your circumstance, not just change your software provider. Correct, it's different mentality.
1: And I want to, I, I want to take that and sort of um, transition into one of my other don'ts. Um, you know, I, I think it's you know, don't be unclear on how you're going to measure performance contractually. So I think the, the question just popped up. So how do you measure SI performance and quality? You know, it's, a, it's a great question. You want to have defined, you know, for whatever scope of work that you're doing, you know, very simple objectives and, and outcomes that you can tie back into that, that particular statement of work, whatever it is. I mean, there's there's the easy things that we looked at. You know, was the project done on time? Was it done on budget? Did you switch out my team? Um, Were there change orders that came up that should have been addressed, you know, during the the scoping phase? All of those things are, those are the easy sort of KPIs that you can, that you can put in, you know, contractually to ensure, you know, um, or those are indicators of success. But if there's certain things that you can tie as the outcome for a particular project, I mean, those are the real things that you can go back and and reevaluate the partner um, on to say, you know, was this partner somebody I'm going to use again for future projects? And you know, based upon what we're seeing, is you know, sixty percent of clients will go back and use that same partner for additional projects, but a full forty percent of them will say, you know, they, they they may have you know checked the boxes with you know delivery. But it didn't, you know, it left us wanting. So I think, again, you know, very, you know, simply, it's what are the outcomes or what are the business impacts as a result of the statement of work that you've put a box around? And that's really where you measure performance.
0: Yeah, and 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 I guess I would add that I think I have a couple of comments on measuring performance. I was going to save a couple of them to the end. But I think one of them that I strongly believe in is Is not it's like different KPIs, but also how do you come up for air more often? Because very often on these troubled projects, it doesn't just end when you pick the right partner. And and a lot of times, what I see is customers don't seem to come up for air often enough and and find ways of saying how are we doing, and 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 having an objective way of kind of looking at that or some something closer to objective, right? As opposed to what we. That I used to make fun of in this business is golf course relationships that are unfortunately still too rampant in our industry, right? Where, oh yeah, we do all, we get all the firm's business on this software or whatever. And it's like, well, why? You know, because you, because you have access to a nice golf course uh that that shouldn't be the reason. So so coming up for error making course corrections I think is a really big missing piece when we talk about how to avoid repeating past mistakes. Are there any um more don'ts from the list we covered a lot of don'ts I think just answering the questions. Brian, do you see anything on your don'ts list we haven't covered?
2: I got a bunch. Uh I'll just rattle them off real quick and then you can decide if you want to waste any time on error we can talk about one or one of them, let's say um I uh, you don't want to pick vendors um, uh, who do not disclose their conflicts of interest. Are they going to shove you into a solution you probably didn't want or is not right for your firm? Um, do you want uh, that you, you don't want to deal with a vendor who doesn't have or care or produce any kind of um, strategic customer reviews? You know, they, they should be able to show you reviews of work they've done for the customers that really focus on some of these great kind of forward-looking deals. Somebody who just talks about, and we implemented this product somewhere, you know, so what? Uh, you don't want uh, to pick somebody who has no multinational project capability. Uh, I'm astonished how small my little company is, and yet I'm every year I'm doing projects somewhere around the world. Uh, and yet, you try and find uh, a lot of implementers in particular, and they can only do something if it's within a, you know, a 50 minute drive of where the person's located out of. That's not gonna create a great project success deal if the, um, if the service people are geographic bound or the company has no idea how they would operate, behave or anything else across borders. That's a few of them. Bonnie, what are yours? I'm sure you got six slides. Uh, so what, what do you got on your list?
1: yeah um, so don't go into a project um, without a clear people definition. and as much as it is the people side of the equation from the partner size side as it is your own internal team, um, you know, these massive projects become so much more unwieldy because they, take many years to complete. And lo and behold, you have three, you know, team turnovers during the process of that. I think there's more success that's realized when you can take and break the project up in phases, but ensure that your people, the people side of the equation doesn't turn over to the extent that you can um, that you can really control that. I mean, with the you know, the way of the world right now and the great resignation, that's really tough. On the other hand, the biggest, one of the biggest problems in these in these projects is, this idea of knowledge transfer, either on the consultant team side, man, that's, that's a really bad one, but internally, you know, when it, the onus is back on the customer, when they change the project team over and over um, all of a sudden, you know, you get a brand new team in there and it's a whole new project. So, um, you know, do not, um, you know, go in with an unclear bench of who exactly is going to you know, run this project and, you know, make sure everybody's committed to staying through the duration of that particular phase.
0: Tracy has uh, rolled out the misery KPI. How did the project feel? Was I the client miserable and stressed out the whole time? So it's an interesting, valid point. I think around like, do, do miserable projects lead to great outcomes? I would guess probably not most of the time. Well, let's stay on that for just a
2: second. Um, I think the best clients actually are looking for not just a technical implementer, but they're also looking for someone who's going to be a bit of a consultant. That consultant's going to help them with either personnel issues, change management training issues, those kind of things. So that's all in the bag. Uh, that should be there for any project. But more importantly, I think what a lot of uh, integrators, consultants, whatever, need to realize is that the customer is actually paying you for a very non-technical outcome, and that is they're paying you to drive and force them to change. You've got to get them out of their comfort zone and you've got to make them comfortable with moving to a new reality, uh, uh, you know, a metaverse set in the physical world, if you will. Uh, But you got to get them to a new destination, a new point X. And if you're not making them uncomfortable a little bit, then you're probably not doing your job. Uh, you know, you're not being paid to just follow orders and just do some blind kind of stupid thing just because somebody's going to pay you the money for it. Uh, because if you do that, you have no integrity, and you have you deliver no value, and it'll hurt your reputation in the long term. And you don't want to be known for that. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, if you're not you're not driving change, particularly if we're looking at these transformational projects, you better be driving a whole lot of change. And you need to be in front of what that entails and what that means. And if your client's getting uneasy or nervous, whatever, it's because you're not communicating. You're not um, uh, as far ahead of the curve as you think you are. And the client's getting concerned that you don't know what you're doing. So you either need to go get the right talent, get smart on what you're doing, but whatever, realize that you're paid to make change happen. You're not there to help them enshrine their old habits. John's heard me talk many times where I say that nostalgia is not a strategy, and you're not there to reinvent the nostalgic view of the way that grandpa used to run the company in ought seven. So anyway.
0: Josh uh, says, per what Brian says, the partner is often what I call the adult supervision. They need to lead sometimes from the front, sometimes from the rear. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's why I wear a pair of size 13 shoes in case I'm on the rear and I got to keep kicking that client, you know, moving them across the finish line. But that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um,
1: I mean, there's like a saying, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're not doing anything really, you know, that big. And I mean, these projects are not going to feel great, Um, you know, but I think there's a difference between misery because the project is not successful and misery because change is hard. And you have to understand like what misery is it? Is it misery because you're consulting or your partner sucks or is it because they're really pushing the envelope and making you do things that you haven't done before. And sometimes it's like, you know, Tracy says, it's that tough love that really, um, you know, causes true transformation. And so I think, you know, it, it's you know. Sometimes it's who do you survey about whether a project is is successful, and I, I think you need multiple points with on the on the project team, not just the executive decision maker um, or the executive sponsor, but you know, individual project team members as well as the the team lead. And you'll probably get a variety of answers in, in terms of how do I feel about a particular project. Okay.
0: Uh, just Naren, real quick, uh, thanks for covering the topic. Will there be a transcript or summary published? Uh, so uh, I do publish three plays uh, on YouTube. And also I have an audio channel busting the omni channel with podcast audio reviews. I don't do transcripts. Uh, but uh, if you ping me, I'll send you a transcript. I don't publish them. I've never been asked for one. Summary, not so much because uh, I think the devil's in the details, so I don't think a summary would add a whole lot of value. But sometimes I do write about these on Diginomica. So, but feel free to ping me individually if you want a copy of a full tra- machine transcript, AI transcript, if you will. Uh, Tracy uh, has a comment. You can't see me, but I'm raising my hands in the air. It's like a combination of tough love. Don't forget the love. This is hard for them. Config is the easy part. It is people, process, politics, part that I get paid for. I call it momming them. There you go. Soft, yeah, a, skill, soft skills for the win.
2: I think a lot of people forget that these kind of projects, they're financial, technical, emotional, political, Um Give me a minute. I actually I actually testified on this point. There were like eight or nine attributes, whatever that rattled off like that. But, yeah, these are multifaceted uh, initiatives that have all kinds of additional dimensions need to be addressed. And a smart integrator knows that. In fact, probably one of the most um, one of the most interesting and insightful books i ever read about how to run projects actually was a child rearing book i read uh, decades ago and i learned probably one important lesson that children hate change and uh, little kids you know are very comfortable with the fact that if mom always is the one that takes them to uh, school dad takes them to the soccer practice whatever if the parents switch roles it just causes all kind of grief for the kids you know so they love constants. And what I learned about clients and uh, project team members is uh, adults are nothing more than older children. And, uh, you know, so they don't like change either. And unfortunately, you've got to help coach them and move them through the process and get them to get, you know, across the threshold. So, John, do we want to take a different tack and
0: talk about some of the good things now? We do. We do. But uh, just real quick on, John's got a tip which kind of leads itself into that. He says, the best question i found to ask an SI is this, uh, John Belden says, what are the big decisions I'm going to have to make and how are you going to help me make those decisions? That will be a leading indicator if they're really going to help drive change. Thanks, John, for that. So, so yes, uh, part of the job in this program is to shift away a little bit from bashing the BS to providing some some ideas on how to move forward. That are hopefully not just the same things we keep hearing, but hopefully some new ideas. So uh, Brian and Bonnie have independently prepared their lists, and while we don't have a whole lot of time left, uh, we are going to we are going to make sure we hit on the the ones. So uh, Bonnie, do you want to start this one uh, with some of yours? I probably maybe pick a few of them, and we'll do like a couple batches. Hmm.
1: Um, so first and foremost. You want to in, interview your project team and the people, not necessarily the firm, right? You'll hear about, you know, you'll you'll see the most impressive people trotted in for the selection process, but you want to meet and get to know very well the project team who will be assigned to your account and make sure that there is. A um, you know a real connection that you have with them, like John mentioned, you know, being able to uh, trust that they are going to know and have a, a a great set of wisdom to bring in and help you work through those difficult decisions that are made. If you do not connect with that project team, no matter how impressive the firm is, um. It, that's that's going to be no good. So, um, you know, you really want to make sure that you interview the project team. You know exactly who you're going to be assigned and that contractually you are uh, assured that that's the same team that is going to be working with you. Because, again, the, these projects are all about the people that uh, are brought into the account. And it's, it's so important to understand the who.
0: Yep. Tracy's calling out the bait and switch. I think I called that out at the beginning too. No one likes the bait and switch. So make sure they're going to be the ones.
1: And and we've seen a lot of issues recently with subcontractors because of the availability of talent right now and there to be, you know, a a, a real, uh, you know, issue getting um, bench strength um, and availability for, for projects. We've seen subs, you know, come in into the equation and and that doesn't bode well.
0: Okay. You got another one from your list, Bonnie? Anything else that we haven't touched on?
1: Um, so I think the other one isn't necessarily about interviewing the firm and the, the choice of firm, but about the, the project itself is, to break up that project into phases and milestones that you can clearly, um, view along the way. Um, and rather than having a single project that lasts for three years, really make sure that you, you know, celebrate the phases along the way, measure success throughout the project and, um, you know, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time, so to speak, and make sure that, That 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 contract clearly states um, phases of the project and allows you to, you know, easily disentangle yourself if things are not working.
0: Brian, you got a few to add to the fire there? Sure. I would say one is
2: uh, a lot of whatever you want to call yourself a consultant and integrate whatever is more of them need to act as a fiduciary for their client. They need to put their client's interest ahead of their own or their ahead of their own firm. And when you have that perspective and that may require some empathy skills But that actually really changes your perspective and helping you see what's the value the customer wants. How are what are the things they want or value uh, and want from your team and so forth? And when you do it that way, you can realize, like, are we even a good fit for this based on what it is they want, as opposed to I need to close and book this. And that's just not going to cut it. Uh, Another one I had in here is um, uh, I think it's important that uh, I think the best service operations are the ones where the people proposing the work, they're the ones who have to eat what they kill. Uh, They are the ones who, they saw it, they walked it, uh, the halls, they know how big it is, and and it's their personal brand at risk if they don't deliver against that, as opposed to companies that have a separate sales organization will sell promise anything and then throw the deal over the wall to someone else in delivery to go make it happen. And it can't be done sometimes because uh, they, they've they come up with an unrealistic scope or they priced it too low or they uh, underbid on the kinds of skills required. Finally, I would just add in there, I think the best consultants are the ones who have outstanding listening skills and they know how to uh, walk the halls and talk and meet with the client uh, individuals and find out exactly what's going on. Not necessarily what did the customer put in an RFI uh, that's going out for the services or the technology. Um, A lot of times clients do this terrible cut and paste job. They'll take an RFI they did to acquire, I don't know structural steel beams, and I'll try and make it work for services for an IT project. And it totally misses all the critical things about what is the business problem really trying to solve? What's the root cause of that problem? How are you going to do it? What are some of the more novel ways? They don't put any of that in there. And so you need someone who's going to go and ask the uncomfortable questions. One of the things I learned early in my career, one of the best advantages of hiring students right out of college is they don't know anything. And you go turn them loose on a client or prospect, excuse me, and tell them, go ask all these questions. Like, why are you doing this project? What do you want to get out of it? What are the benefits? And thank goodness for patient clients, because these people actually spill their beans and tell this stuff to them. Whereas if I go and do it, they think, oh, this guy's got all this gray hair. He should have known all this to begin with. And why am I wasting my time talking to him? So um, good listening skills. Great thing.
0: Good stuff. I'm going to add a few that that I have on my mind. one of them is they better know your industry. And so this is kind of stepping away from evaluating a partner's configuration and product knowledge. I, w- I would want to ask them, what are the leading companies in my industry doing right? And what are the laggers doing wrong? And I, and I want to hear some good answers to that question. And if I don't, then I then I think you're making maybe a horizontal play for my business and you don't understand the nuances of what my industry is dealing with right now. So that's that's a big one for me. Another one, and I feel I can do this because I don't do this type of project. There's a lot of people in the chat and, and perhaps on camera that would, uh, but the role, the vital role of the independent voice, the role of contracting someone who is not the prime to essentially hold the prime accountable and, and also provide a separate voice of input, where they're not as financially directly tied to the project as the prime is on a massive contract. And I, I think that's really important. Too many customers don't avail themselves of that. I don't think there's any prime vendor that should should get all your trust. I think there should be someone else keeping an eye at periodic points. And there's a variety of independent experts, whether it's uh, more transformation uh, strategy or whether it's more specific to a particular product. So that's a question for another time. Um, and, and then finally, I want to see what Dennis said about disturbing the comfortable. I want to see uh, services partners that think of themselves as advisors, not just ask kissing management and saying, we'll do whatever you want in your roadmap. I want to see them asking challenging questions and, and provoking management. For example, why are you setting an arbitrary go live that's going to rush this project and leave out, say, uh, a, a period of user engagement and testing that we think we need or what have you. Uh, so th- those are things that, that come to mind for me. Hmm. And we have a few more minutes too, so those of you in the chat, uh, we will, you know, linger for a few. But if you have some final points and tips or questions, now is the time. Wow, we've had an awesome uh, chat today. Lot, a lot of brain power. I'm also going to post John's, cu- excuse me, Josh, Josh's customer success link in case you didn't see that earlier. This is essentially honing in on the role of the customer in all of this which is also a really important conversation that we haven't totally focused on today, though. I think if you read between the lines, there's plenty of stuff for customers to act on here, but, uh, but yeah, that's probably Josh uh, subject for another uh, show. Well worth looking at. Brian, what's on your mind?
2: So off uh, just keying off of Josh's comment, um, you know, uh you do need the the client does have some responsibility for this stuff and uh, what's interesting is I, w- I recently did a big uh, factory of the future uh, project and the client had some of the uh, wing tip wearing um management consulting firms uh, working with them on some aspects of this big change transformation. They had a couple of systems integrators that we know and others. And it was funny, none of them actually had the big picture. And uh, even though I wasn't my team, we weren't there to solve the big picture problems. We kept surfacing the right kind of issues that their management team needed to focus on. And uh, so where do you find yours truly Uh, having a chat with the CEO on a zoom call and the executive committee going through what are the other kind of structural changes they're going to have to make and why. And, and and it's fascinating if no one on the projects willing to step up and get that 50,000 foot level, then how do you know your project's really going to align and everything else? And sometimes the clients themselves don't know what that is. So, I, I do agree with Josh that sometimes the clients are their own worst enemy, but I, I have to remember and remind myself that uh, most clients only replace like their ERP system once every 10 or 20 years. So they're not, they don't do these things every single day. I may be in the middle of these kind of things that Josh can be in, in you know, frequently but most client personnel are not. And I think we have to have that kind of, we have to remember that. And if you're going to be a great consultant, integrator, implementer, whatever you need to remember that this is not what your clients do as their day job. And you're the one who has to help them get, you know, find, think about all these upcoming issues and what are the strategies they're going to have to use to mitigate some of the challenges that come up.
0: Yeah, uh, Dan Howitt, doubling down on the emotional and political elements are more important and everyone misses that aspect. And I think that's a really good aspect to bring out during this sort of notion of how a customer would evaluate a firm and getting back to Tracy's comments around what if you're friggin' miserable on your project. And, and there is that sense in which change is emotional. Right. And, and, and so there is that, you know, that, you know, that sort of midwife thing does come to mind a little bit, right. That, that, that maybe we're a little too narrow in how we define the skills of successful consultants. And we need to think more about people that really understand the trauma and adversity that people are going through right now in, in their lives and how that is such a factor in, in their buy-in to these projects and whether they should actually even give a crap and even care about a successful result. So. Uh, well, That's I don't want to
2: suck all the oxygen out of the air here on this one, but um, that, You're right. And let me just add this a little bit. Clients, um, if a client doesn't feel that that you are uh, not only protecting their confidence, but you're also sharing with them some of the challenges of what's coming up in their company, then they don't really feel that you're acting possibly as the best consultant you could be. Uh, i mean they're looking for you to be almost an extension of their organization and that requires that you that uh you you know you you're going to you're going to get pushed into situations if you're doing your job well they're going to want to know what do you think about my own employees uh, that are helping you out on this project and you better have a response for that how are you going to handle that you know your job is not to just and, you know, install something, set some configuration switches and then go away. If you think that's what it is, then I, I hate to tell you, you're not a high value add kind of player out there and, your career may be limited as a result. And what we need to think about is since this pandemic and everyone's been trying to do work virtually, it's a lot harder for people to actually create those kind of connections with the work, the workforce of the client, as well as with the management of the client. And it's hard to understand is somebody lying to me? Are they telling me a story? You know, who's um, who can I trust? You know, are they really going to get something done? How do they, I know that they actually finished their deliverables. I can go on, you know, where, In a on-prem kind of world, I can walk around and I can learn a whole lot by um, catching somebody in a hallway and quiz them, you know, Johnny on the spot. So how do we develop the talent in the teams, the people with these incredible analytical and people skills to be able to know that unless they get out there and actually play in traffic with clients? Because without that interaction, I'm not sure they're going to ever get beyond being just a technical configurator.
1: I Mm -hmm. would say if you are not a good manager of people, you're not going to be a good manager of projects because there's so much, um, you know, you, you Mm -hmm. need a high emotional intelligence to run projects like these because they're so dependent on, um, you know, involving multiple people and, you know, managing personalities and change and conflict. And, um, so, you know, you need to have a, have a high EQ, both on the, the consultant side as well as internally, if you're going to lead a project.
0: John Belden says the most important attribute of a good SI size is to enable your client to make wicked, messy decisions at scale. That's the spirit, John. Yeah. Hey, I,
2: I wish I wish you would have put uh, a couple more buzzwords in there than just scale. Uh, you know, we could have got, uh, you know, agile, flexible, and a whole bunch more in there that are...
0: Um, oh, yeah. Don't forget, they can future-proof your project as well. There That's we one go. of my favorites. There
2: we go. Uh, yeah. You know, let's get, let's ring the bell on that one. That's clearly the word of the day. Future proof. But
0: Yeah. I'm glad the show could future proof all future projects of everyone in the, in the chat. Uh, You know, that, that was my goal today and now we're set. So, you know, we did, we didn't even have to wait for the metaverse to come along. We just fixed this crap. It's awesome. Uh Den is asking, does Brian's observation about the pandemic conditions explain why I've seen limited innovation and more incrementalism?
2: Uh, I would say it has challenged uh, some some bigger transformation stuff. And to Den's point, what frustrates me is I've actually seen people drop the phrase business transformation and go to digital transformation and which is a step down because all you're doing is you're now take a manual process and you're using digital you know capabilities to do the same damn thing you did before uh, i'm sorry that's not that's not transformative that's just um, you know it's like i i put in a book i wrote about how if you, you change the color of that accent wall behind me to a deeper darker color i didn't transform the room i just bought a gallon of paint and that's what a lot of people are doing With some of these projects are called transformative they're actually just they just bought a gallon of paint that's it you know i'm sorry folks that's not transformation and i think a lot of people don't do the big transform this stuff because they don't know how to do it in a um in a uh, more work from home kind of whatever kind of world but i can't but i can tell you it can be done and, uh, and, and I've been there.
1: Yeah. It's a lot harder to walk the halls, so to speak, as you were saying before to, you know, get the ear of your people and find out what's happening. Um, you know, you have to do, be more creative now on Slack or digital.
0: At the risk of spamming the chat, I encourage folks to search out Thomas's post where he contrasts digital transformation and digitalization. It's, it's very effective. And, uh, any final comments? I saw that.
2: I saw that piece. That was actually very good. Thomas.
0: Any final comments from you, Bonnie, and you want to tease any upcoming, uh, data or projects that we should be looking out for from you?
1: Um, so I would, my, my final comment would be, um, don't scrimp on change management. Um, we didn't really talk about that, but you know, that, that's a piece of this as well. And, um, yeah, and I and I would just say um, the 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 tease for future things is um, you know look at metrics as as a way to be leading indicators uh, and benchmark your success along the way. The data is is important to measure independently.
0: Well, a big thank you to the chat. This this was exactly what I wanted this show to be. Was your active contributions helping us all to get smarter? I always felt that the people watching these shows are absolutely just as smart as anyone on the camera. You've, you've proven that again and again today. And, and I realize that this, these are hard topics, and sometimes it feels like we're talking about the same crap year after year. Unfortunately, until we solve these problems, we have to talk about them. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I, I do think we are coming up and solidifying some of the better approaches that do work. And and I think it's our collective job to continue this conversation. This isn't just about services partners. This is about everyone. We all have responsibility for this, including those of us on this broadcast. So let's go out there and try to have the courage to make these things better. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks, Thank Brian. You, and yes, I will be back. So that Friday afternoon slot, you will see me again, but I do have a little travel coming up, but hang in there with me. The show will live on. (laughs) Bye-bye.